Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? We have some really cool merch available in our store. Just go to indefensibleplants.com and click on apparel at the top of the screen or find the link in the show notes. All of our merch has such cool designs and it's customizable so you can find a style that works for you. But most importantly, merch is one of the best ways you can help keep this show up and running each and every week. But speaking of the show, I have a really interesting topic that kind of bridges on last week's episode about plants and water, because today we're talking about plant stress in the context of things like drought, heat, nutrient deficiencies, and how all of those things can be extremely related. And what's great about work like this is it scales from molecular processes to species differences all the way up to ecosystems, our society, and the planet as a whole. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Lou Santiago, and his passion for this is felt throughout our entire conversation. He's thinking of some really big ideas and working with a lot of great people to solve some really important problems. So I don't want to keep you from it any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Lou Santiago. I hope you enjoy. All right. Dr. Lou Santiago, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to talk to you today, but first let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. So I am a professor of plant physiological ecology at the University of California, Riverside, and that includes uh, research on plants, um, teaching about plants, uh, physiology and ecology, and also serving and interacting with my community. Excellent. And where did this all kind of start for you? I mean, plants are obviously the focus of your research. Were you always a plant person or did you kind of stumble into it throughout some experience in your life? Well, you know, Matt, it's funny. I actually, uh, I started out as a chemist. Ah. Um, when, I, when I went to college, I was going to be a chemist. And my first three years, I ma was majoring in chemistry and took chemistry classes at the University of California, Berkeley. And um, in my after my third year, I had an internship at Clorox Company. So huh. I was on my way to being a corporate chemist and they were talking about dangling job offers once I graduated. But that summer, I went on a backpacking trip with my friends to Yosemite. And as we were hiking up this very steep trail, um, we took a breather and I stepped off the trail and I noticed there was this kind of low area where a lot of pine litter had accumulated and underneath it was this black soil. Ooh. And I, th I thought to myself, this is carbon chemistry and somewhere out there, <laughs> there's a chemist that works on this and that that would be so much more fun than what I was doing in the lab. <laughs> and so I, I came back that next fall and I started taking plant classes and, um, and here we are. <laughs> That's amazing. What a bold sort of like realization, but also, hey, th this is what's going to change me and I'm doing it. And yeah, exactly. Here you are. It, it, I love these moments of especially retooling a trajectory because it just shows you there's no single way. There's no like, well, we have to do it by this time. There's no recipe for success in this world. Yeah, that's right. I think people do it all the time. You you get struck by something that's more exciting than what you've been doing and you change lanes. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's fine. Nice. And so with the chemistry background, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can look at plants. And you in particular spend a lot of time thinking about plant stress, how plants respond to stresses in their environment. Would you say there's a lot of chemistry overlap in that? Or did that really send you on a completely different research trajectory? Well, the chemistry has always been good, good background yeah. of, you know, physiology and chemistry go hand in hand. Um, but stress is something that I've, you know, kind of fell in into relatively recently over about the past 10 years. Um, earlier in my career, I was just kind of more concerned with fluxes. You know, if we go mm. back to the late nineties, um, we were trying to figure out how much water plants were losing and what was their role in the water cycle. Um, I, I did work in a watershed and uh, it was really to kind of characterize how much water the plants were using, how much would go to the reservoir and how much could be used um, by people downstream. And 
um, as climate change started to become a bigger factor and students who came to my lab started to ask more about climate change and get more concerned about drought, we started shifting our focus towards measuring plant stress. And, and so that, that was how that came about. I mean, plant stress is always part of plant physiology. It's one of the most interesting parts. Um, but I would say that our attention to plant stress has just been amplified um, in recent years because of climate change. Fascinating. I, I, I'm really curious about how that shift sort of felt because, you know, the way I've just kind of understood that it's as how is water moving through the plants down to now What's going on within the plant itself that may regulate some of those fluxes, but at the same time, the inner workings of how the plant's responding to really, in many cases in your work, a lack of that water? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, when, when you're measuring fluxes, um, you know, plants, you measure that plants go through periods of stress. Um, you know, when they, when they have abundant water, they, they lose more water through their stomates. As water gets more restricted, they, they close their stomates more. And so, so those two kind of lines are parallel and there's a lot of the same techniques. So it was really a, kind of a shift in, in focus um, to, to start looking at plant drought stress. And, and that's led to other types of stress. You know, now we, I'm starting to get into temperature stress a little bit, Mm. um, because, uh, droughts seem to be happening, um, with heat waves increasingly. And so those two stresses are going hand in hand. Um, we've also dabbled with salinity stress a little bit because, um, you know, when a plant is under salinity stress, it kind of mimics a drought stress. And so there's a lot of parallels there as well. And so, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the techniques to study these stresses kind of come together. Sure. And speaking of techniques, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, as you started to move more and more into this world of, uh, the, the, the response of plants to stress, the level of understanding you have to have of those physiological mechanisms has to deepen, or at least you have to start working with those people. So that must have been its own sort of crash course in re-engineering the way you're thinking about your own work, even with this new path you've set yourself on since backpacking. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it really has. You know, I, you know, I've I've been doing this for about 25 years, and so in in that time, I've seen um, some of the most useful techniques for measuring plant stress come online. Um, I remember when I was a graduate student, and I was working on um, sap flow, measuring how much water was moving up through these trees, and uh, just a few years before that, um, some folks in Utah had been developing methods to actually measure uh, when plants. Um, actually hydraulically fail. And I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, that's kind of neat and kind of <laughs> continuing to do my thing. Um, but when we were ready to ask those questions, those those techniques were there. Awesome. Yeah, I, I really love sort of the exponential rate that technology has developed to make science like this faster, more interesting, like just a deeper and deeper dive. And I guess that's kind of how our society has always worked, but it really does open up new doors in the last, you know, so many people I talk to 10, 15, 20 years uh, seems to be sort of a huge benchmark and change in the way we look at things. Oh, it is so true. There are so many people who are good with technology that are focusing on plants and climate change now. And it, it really goes across the whole range. You know, there's people who work at the molecular scale who, who are looking at the transcriptomics and metabolomics of plants under stress, um, how their genes change and what kind of compounds they produce. Um, there, there's people looking at the physiological aspects of it. Um, and then there's people who are doing computer models and using satellite data to, to track droughts. And so it's really a, a diverse field of people that are coming together to address this problem. It's, yeah. it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that is exciting because it is a massive problem and it does take an army. But, you know, you mentioned two big things here is, is climate change and its its effect on stress. And, you know, when you think about climate change, especially in the context of biodiversity, you really start thinking about how species wink out. The individuals uh, die off, populations die off, and then unfortunately often species die off. But stress is that big in-between area. And in the context of what you're looking at, largely in the context of drought, you know, salinity and heat, what does plant stress mean? I mean, you know, with humans, it's cortisol goes up, blood pressure goes up, you get ulcers, like we mm-hmm. can relate to stress, but it's, plants are so different than humans. 
Yeah, yeah, that that's right. Um, kind of like you would measure the blood pressure of a human, there are certain parameters that we can measure in plants to, to kind of gauge where they are in terms of stress. And so some of those things are their water potential, um, their rate of photosynthesis. Uh, those are those are two really big ones. Um, uh, people also um, that aren't aren't even physiologists just measure their rate of growth, and as their rate of growth um, starts to slow, they they can determine that that plants are under stress. So there's a there's a variety of of ways to do this, and we actually wrote a paper recently um, that tried to make the point that, you know, you, you can measure photosynthetic rate and know how much a plant is photosynthesizing, but that information is so much more valuable if you know the critical physiological limits of photosynthesis for that species. And so lately we've been recommending that people, you know, kind of do assays where, where they determine at what temperature photosynthesis um, might become inhibited. And, and then when they go out and measure photosynthesis, they can put it into a context. Mm. Okay. So context has a big role to play here because just because we know what it's doing doesn't mean much if we don't know if that's going to kill an individual of a species or, or not really. <laughs> How long can it last? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, doctors, when they measure your blood pressure, they know that above a certain value, um, you, you need to, you know, improve your diet and exercise more, right? And so similarly with plants, um, we, we want to know, you know, where to put that number. Um, but, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, with the diversity of species, it, it becomes really challenging because mm. each species has a unique physiological limit. And, and so, you know, by, um, by measuring a number of species, you start to understand in a community, which species might be more at risk, um, you know, which species are doing well and having that context really helps us both understand what's going on and also predict which species might be most vulnerable. I'm glad you took it there because one thing that really took me aback looking at your publication record is just how many ecosystems you've worked in, right? You've done this in the tropics. We're talking you're in Panama right now, but you've worked in Mediterranean climates and a lot of areas in between. And I would imagine that the approach, you know, the techniques might be the same, but what you're finding has to vary so much. And then you add species to that. And boy, that's some noisy data if you're trying to make comparisons. It, it really is. Um, you know, you, to make those kind of comparisons, you have to kind of, you know, skim across the top with the most simple <laughs> analyses. And as soon as you go into detail, you get really bogged down with the intricacies of each site. Um, but there are certain generalities that you, you can pull out. Um, and, and those are the most beneficial results often. Um, I would say that having worked in many, many ecosystems um, has, has given me great perspective. And, mm. I, and I feel very fortunate um, that I've been able to do that. Um, when I now take measurements somewhere, I have, I feel like I have a greater, you know, experience of, of different ecosystems to draw from. And, you know, it helps, it helps me interpret data. Um, it helps me try to understand what's going on, but it is an extremely complex problem, um, because of the diversity of plants. And I would say that for understanding plant stress, it, it may be our biggest challenge mm. um, is is just the number the number of species out there that we would want to to really understand in terms of their their limits. Yeah, and so in your shoes, you know, when you're talking to prospective grad students or collaborators on this sort of stuff, how do you start chipping away at species selection? And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say there's probably some trait based work that you you say no matter what we're gonna measure, we have to think of this sort of trait for this sort of limitation. But what, what does that process look like when you're really starting to try to put these ideas, uh, you know, from paper to the field? Right. Well, um, you know, for example, in California, um, we worked at a system that had uh, about 16 or 18 woody species. Mm -hmm. And so in that, in that type of context, we just measure all of them. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's a, that's a reasonable number. And so in some of our studies, we, we have, you know, just measured all of them. And that's, that's a really valuable study because, you know, we can look across that ecosystem and, you know, put some bounds on, on everything that's there in terms of woody species. Um, in other studies, we, we've taken a, a subsample and we often stratify them by some piece of data. A really valuable one, if you're talking about drought, is um, rooting depth. 
if mm. we have some information on their rooting depth, um, we can kind of classify them into, you know, maybe shallow rooted or, or deep rooted species. Um, that data can be challenging to find. So another way to do it is we can stratify it by their phenology, you know, take three or four evergreen species and three or four deciduous species and um, use that as kind of a, a point of comparison to have two different classes. Um, and so th that's another thing we often do for woody species. For herbaceous species, it, it's more challenging um, because if you think about annuals, your community that comes up every year changes, right? And, and so, um, you know, often there's, you know, some more, some common species that are there all the time, but there are some that come and go and trying to decide which ones um, to study can be challenging for annual species. It's often, you know, what's there at that time. Mm, okay. So context matters in so many aspects of shaping this work uh, by the sounds of it. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, because, you know, how you set up your study really determines what you can conclude. Yeah. And um, so you have to be careful of those limitations. Um, but yeah, we we do our best to try to get a representation of, of the ecosystem. Um, some some of my, some of my colleagues will measure the most common species in mm. an ecosystem, and that can be really valuable because your results are are then able to be extrapolated to a greater proportion of the individuals in that system. So that that's something that's often done. Sure, sure. And and thinking about no matter what trait you are selecting or suite of traits, really, to start measuring, to start looking at these sorts of things, it's, it, it is helpful to have that comparison to make generalizations, but also kind of sanity check yourself to know when things are trending in a certain direction or unique in, in many instances, depending on the species you're looking at. And so is part of that sort of advancement in the, the measuring and, and, and availability of technology, just access to these trait databases is really kind of accelerating our ability to draw bigger sort of inference space? Absolutely. Um, often before I go out and uh, plan a study, I will look at trait databases to try to figure out how much that trait varies, um, whether some of our species of interest are already in those databases and have already been measured. Um, that can kind of give us some clues to, to what we, we might find. Um, and then also, if, if you just look at what traits are in the databases, that gives you uh, an indication of what traits would be valuable um, to the mm. community of, of ecologists. Um, and, and so, and also to modelers. So modelers <laughs> use particular traits in their models. And so this is one of the reasons I really like talking to modelers and going to modeling sessions at conferences <laughs> is I learn about what traits they want to plug into their models. And so I figure if I measure those traits, um, they're more likely to get used and my research will be more relevant to that community. Um, so, so there are, a, there's a certain amount of traits that, um, tend to be really, really valuable right now. And there, it becomes a certain currency in the field if you have that data. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the beauty of cross-disciplinary interactions, right? Is, is it's one thing to sit and yeah, you can make inferences based on solely your work, but to make your work more applicable, you, you have to talk to the modelers, not necessarily being a modeler yourself, uh, all the time. That's right. I, I like to collaborate with modelers because um, I'm I'm not a modeler. I respect what they do, <laughs> and um, you know, we re recently we've written some grants and and included a modeler in the grant so that when we collect all that data, it, it has somewhere to go, mm. and and um, that way, we, you know, we feed the modelers with the physiological data. It gets used in making future predictions and that kind of thing, and um, that that's a really nice uh, link. And I'm sure on the other side, they're very happy when you can validate things in the field for them. That probably goes both ways. <laughs> oh, they, they love data. You know, they, <laughs> they will, they will take the data right out of my hands and plug it into their models. Yes, absolutely. And so from a very like on boots on the ground perspective here, I can get my head wrapped around how you would measure rooting depth or plant height, plant growth rates, those sorts of things. But a lot of what you're talking about, the physiological side of things are very small, if not impossible to see with the naked eye. You know, I know stomata exist. I've only ever seen them under magnified yeah. images. So what are, what are some of the tools and ways you go about measuring some of these processes that are just really sight unseen uh, unless you've got a microscope? Right. Um, so one of our principal 
uh, techniques that we use, especially for drought stress, is, is called a vulnerability curve. Mm. And um, basically what we do is, is we'll take stem samples um, of woody plants, uh, you know, about the size of a pencil, and, you know, we will make sure they're fully hydrated and we'll push water through them um, to get their maximum rate of flow. And then we will gradually experimentally expose them to drought stress. And um, as we do that, we iteratively measure their rate of flow and we create a curve of their flow rate versus drought stress. And, and that drought stress is measured as water potential. And so as they decline in terms of their water status, their, their flow also declines and we get a response surface. And um, with that, we're able to tell when that species and the kind of wood that it makes, um, at what level of drought will it stop functioning? And, and that tells us when that species will die of drought stress, when that, when that shoot or when that stem will cease functioning and cease supplying water to the leaves distal to it. Um, and, and so that's a really valuable physiological measure um, but the trick is really to try to understand when that wood is going to reach that level because plants may have deep roots during a drought. So they may have a supply of water underground. Um, some plants lose their leaves during drought. So they just kind of minimize their water loss. Um, other plants, they, um, you know, they may just have very drought resistant wood. So it's very hard for them to get to those very low levels. And, and so that that's really kind of only one piece of the puzzle, but physiologically, that's the crucial piece in, term, in terms of drought resistance in woody plants. Now for leaves, we can do something similar. Um, we, we measure the water potential at which leaves will lose their turgor. And mm. um, by that, you know, cells have a positive pressure, but if they're put under drought stress, at, at some point they become flaccid. And it's not their point of death, um, but but it's highly correlated with how much drought resistance they have. And, and so for for you know a different organ, that's a different measure that that we use. And when those two are used together with a woody plant species, that's pretty powerful. You can really rank them in terms of their drought resistance. And and so th those are some of the techniques for us that are really valuable in terms of characterizing species for their drought resistance. Um, but they're, they take a long time. These are, these are <laughs> yeah. phys physiologically tedious techniques. So, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work to get that data. Yeah. Yeah. And it's precious data when you do get it. And so, you know, what is interesting though, is it sounds like what you're doing truly is getting at the core of like, uh, plants obviously need water. Anyone that's forgot to water their plants knows how quickly, or, you know, maybe not quickly, but it certainly will kill a plant over time. But it's got to feel good, you know, having done some trait work myself to know that like the traits you are using, th there isn't a lot of room for debate as to whether or not getting water to your organs is important versus like how much does specific leaf area really affect nitrogen use efficiency, that sort of thing. Like th yeah. there's, there's some really big direct sort of lines you can draw with your work uh, to, to talk about the response of plants to stress. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that, that's why I like physiology. It, it's, um, it, it is really measuring the critical limits. Now, you mentioned functional traits, and functional traits can be really useful. Um, for example, the, at least in some studies, that, um, that uh, technique I mentioned, the vulnerability curves, in, in some cases, it can be predicted by wood density. Wood oh, density wow. is a reasonably related functional trait that is way easier to measure. And so um, in, in some cases, um, you know, you can use wood density to, to try to predict for the many unmeasured species that you, you can't get to. Um, and, and that can be really valuable. So trying to integrate um, the use of, you know, difficult to measure physiological traits that give you a lot of information mm. with easy to measure functional traits that can serve as, you know, decent proxies um, using those together can actually cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah. And those proxies are great because, you know, especially working in areas that are hyper diverse, how do you maximize your time in the field? You could spend a lifetime measuring all of the traits on a single tree, that's not going to get you very far in predictability and <laughs> utility, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, 
Yeah, but functional traits can be really useful. So, for example, one one forest I worked in in French Guiana, um, this eastern Amazonian forest, we were able in two field seasons to characterize about 15 species um, for their vulnerability to drought um, ba based on vulnerability curves and measure the water potential at which their xylem would fail. Um, but we also had the wood density of all the species in that plot. Mm. And so, um, you know, for there were about 150 species in that plot, and we measured about 15. So, you know, <laughs> um, we're measuring a relatively small number. But we used the wood density um, to try to kind of estimate um, a, a community-wide drought resistance. Nice. And, 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 and that was helpful because it's not very satisfying to say, okay, we measured, you know, 10% of the species, we, we know what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, combining the, those, those two can really help a lot. And, and functional traits can be really easy to measure. Like specific leaf area is, is not photosynthetic rate. Um, but it tells us something about, um, the resources that are allocated to that leaf and are related to photosynthesis. Right. So, Functional traits in that respect um, can can be valuable, and they can be valuable for you know ranking different species in terms of their general strategies, and um, you know serving as a, a loose proxy for their physiology as well. Yeah, and so to back it up a little bit for those that aren't working in this realm, you know, why would wood density be a functional trait? Like, what does the density of the wood? How does that relate uh, to the layman for uh, the, the water use efficiency, drought stress, that sort of stuff? Oh yeah, so um, species that have very light wood um, tend to have giant xylem vessels, okay. and giant xylem vessels tend to be less drought resistant. Interesting. So you really are looking across like a huge range of of like scalability on what makes a plant function in its daily life. But then again, you could scale that up across an ecosystem scale and make bigger inferences from that. I, I, I love the scalability of work like this, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what the modelers are doing. Modelers are often, you know, taking the, the bit of physiological data that they have that really like hard trait data, and then they use relationships with soft trait data to try to predict it for the community or, or to create a distribution of traits um, so, so they can populate their models mm. and, and, and so, um, so it can be very effective. Um, and some of these models have gotten quite good actually. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. So the scalability is key. So like in the time you've been working on this, you've been able to watch how these have been refined and processed to be more and more accurate, uh, you know, because I think a lot of times those that aren't in it or around modelers very often just kind of scratch their heads and go like, well, it's math, like it's not real. How do we even know that's going to be predictive? But this is where, again, the field validation and and looking at different lines of evidence really helps. Yeah, the, the models are improving. Um, there, there's still uncertain uncertainty in the models, and especially for predicting drought responses. Like we talked about a few minutes ago, the diversity of species is, is a huge challenge. And, you know, the way plants respond to drought, they, there are a number of traits that are involved. Um, there's a number of behaviors as they dry down that are also involved. And it becomes a very complex problem. And, and in terms of these models, I would say, you know, for something like um, carbon cycling, um, you know, biogeochemical cycling and the movement of elements across pools in the ecosystem, a, a lot of these models work fairly well. Mm -hmm. um, but for predicting the, the responses to stress um, is one of the places where there's the most uncertainty in, in these kinds of models. Mm. And, and I think some of these modelers really like that challenge because um, there, there's a number, number of people that are working in that area. Yeah, I feel like you get into that field because you do like a challenge. You don't get into it because you like a cakewalk of a career. <laughs> you don't have to think much, right? But right. The, some of the challenge here, obviously, is evolutionary history and the unique differences among species and across species. But how much does plasticity play into this? Because plants are extremely plastic organisms when they need to be or in certain aspects of their life histories. But to prevent death, I mean, I would argue drought stress is one of the biggest stresses a plant has to contend with is there a lot of plasticity in some of these traits or is that a big unknown in the work that you're doing at this point um yeah so well especially with wood traits um you know it can take a long time to do those experiments mm -hmm. so researchers will look at species that are really widespread or or that occur across environmental gradients 
um, to try to get an idea of, of how much that species can kind of adjust in terms of its traits. Um, and, and so there, there is some degree, you know, it, it's generally thought that the degree of plasticity within one species is smaller than the differences across species. Sure. Um, so that that's some that's a kind of idea that we rely on. Um, but that is that is a really it's an excellent point and it's an excellent question. Um, I think in leaves we know a lot more about it because right. leaves, um, you know, they they can be produced during an experiment and leaves are pretty evolutionarily labile, um, much more so than wood. And, and so it, it, there's a general sense that both, you know, in evolutionary time and in the acclimation time of an individual, that leaves can, can vary more, um, you know, but when you, you think about wood, it, it's more challenging. And then we always know less about roots, um, you know, and I really, I always commend the people who work on roots um, because it, they're working with less data to begin with. Um, the techniques are more challenging and their, their results are more valuable because of that. Um, right. And so that's really, really important too. I feel like with roots, it's one of those things like in order to study it, you have to disturb it. And that always adds an extra layer of complications to any of the inference that you really want to gain from these sorts of experiments. Yeah, actually, I, years ago, I, I was in a workshop and um, towards the end, we were all getting tired and somebody said, well, you know, wh what's our wish list for ecology? And somebody right away said, invisible soil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> please just like maintain structure and texture, but please make it see through. <laughs> yeah, nice. we, we would learn so much. All right, everyone, yeah. you've heard it. Make that. You'll make a lot of money in the ecology world. <laughs> <laughs> So it does sound like then evolutionary history is, is a big component in this. And, you know, that has a big factor when you start thinking of, of the differences across the ecosystems, again, that you've worked in. And so do you see, like, within a tropical system, predictable levels of drought resistance, or is it all over the place within that ecosystem but bound? And then a Mediterranean has a different subset, or is it truly, you know, depends on the lineage, depends on the genus, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, so there is, there are some patterns within lineages. Um, you know, there are certain groups that tend to be more or less drought resistant. And in some of these tropical species, there, there is more drought resistance than I would have thought. Hmm. Um, you know, especially in some of these, uh, very wet ecosystems. And we've really tried to grapple with that. So, um, one of my colleagues believes that a lot of these tropical trees have, gone through climate changes in their evolutionary history. Um, and, and they've gone through, you know, drying periods that have kind of, um, hardened them evolutionarily and, um, you know, caused um, them as a lineage to become more drought resistant. And, and that's, you know, packed in, um, to their history. Um, other, you know, colleagues of mine believe that things like low soil nutrients can also, produce traits that are that also confer drought resistance and huh. and so there there may be other stresses that um that produce those traits that happen to be good for drought resistance and and so that could also lead to having some drought resistant species in um you know pretty wet ecosystems but the the range of drought resistance that i've seen in um at least neotropical forests is a lot narrower than what I see in Mediterranean type ecosystems. In okay. Mediterranean type ecosystems, I see a, a really much larger range, you know, ranging from the species with really shallow roots that are just super drought resistant, you know, things like Ceanothus, um, mm. all, all the way to things that have very deep roots and, and build wood that isn't that drought resistant. Um, and they're, they're ultimately likely relying on, on deep soil water and deep roots to access that. So in, in the Mediterranean ecosystems, I, I feel like I see just a, a much broader range in, in strategies for dealing like something with drought. Right, right. So you can kind of really start to see these like habitat filters starting to play a role and like, well, the, the players that can get into this system really have to meet this criteria in order to do well enough there to compete long enough to have offspring. Yeah, I feel like in, in the more stressful ecosystems, the species really need to kind of double down on, on their strategies um, and, and choose a path 
Whereas in tropical forest, there's a lot of convergence. Um, there's a lot of similarities among, among the species that grow here. Yeah. So yeah, those are pretty, pretty different ecosystems, but I, I kind of go back and forth between the two. So I think about that a lot. Right. And that's the value of it, right? Is you're not getting sort of the blinders on to just, well, this is my system. Having that comparison, you get to, again, know what the predictable side is, but also those oddballs, the one-offs that you go, all right, that's weird. We really need to drill in more. So that probably gives you deeper insights, better questions in the long run. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to think so. (laughs) You'd hope, right? (laughs) Yeah. So the other side of plant stress you mentioned too, um, you know, salinity being very similar to drought, but, but heat. And to me, I am guilty of this often is that assuming heat and drought kind of are one and the same, but you know, I live in a very hot, but humid climate and they're not one and the same. You can have a ton of moisture around, but it still be heat. And so do you really have to switch gears when you start thinking about heat stress in plants or is, you know, obviously with some relation to water use in there as well? Yeah, I mean, the the two do interact. Um, in fact, some of my colleagues have been doing interaction studies with um, with heat and drought. And one of the things that they found is that plants are much better able to deal with high heat um, if they have a water supply. Mm. And, and so they can use that water to maintain evaporation from their leaves, which helps cool their leaves. And in, in many cases can can cool their leaves many degrees below the high air temperature. Hmm. Um, so, so whether or not they have water becomes a big factor in, in terms of how they deal with heat. Um, and, and so that, that's an interesting finding. Um, but yeah, heat itself, uh, I, I think we're, I think we're still learning a lot about that And you know, there's been kind of a boom recently in techniques for studying plant responses to heat, um, especially in the world of leaf thermotolerance and, and those techniques looking at how, um, how, you know, photosynthesis declines at high heat and then using, um, kind of general physiological assays, um, to look at how the leaf in general responds to heat. And, and so, um, there's even been, um, some studies, uh, you know, with, with climate change and drying, there's been an increase in fires. And so mm-hmm. some of my colleagues are working on, um, you know, when a fire moves through a forest, you know, what are the temperatures that actually, um, damage, um, the, the woody stems and cause them to have limited flow rates um, in the future as they recover from that fire. Um, so, so there's, you know, there are people really approaching uh, heat stress from, from a variety of different directions at this point, and it's happening fast. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, going back to sort of your original background, when you start thinking about like, especially the effects on photosynthesis, your chemistry background really probably comes into play there because it's, you know, the third thermodynamics of how molecules are interacting with each other and, and the rate of certain chemical reactions. Uh, you know, again, I don't think about this as deeply on a day to day basis. I get hot, I sweat, it sucks. But you really have to think <laughs> of how these things start to break down at the cellular level to really start to appreciate how that can affect the overall health and well-being and growth and what a, what have you of a plant. Absolutely, Matt. I mean, there's this biophysical aspect to it. You've got enzymes, you have membranes, and as those heat up, um, they can change their shape a little bit. And enzymes can become denatured. Um, membranes can kind of become loose and, and lose some functionality. Um, it, it's a huge problem uh, for, for plants um, in terms of, you know, the way their components, their cellular components react as chemicals. And you mentioned rates of reactions. Um, yeah, first thing you learn in chemistry is that rates of reactions change with temperature. And so um, so all of that um, is being affected when a, a plant is experiencing heat. In fact, I was just talking about this with a colleague yesterday of the multitude of factors that change in a leaf um, as it heats up. And, you know, in science, we're trying to drill down and measure one process, you know, because we can't measure 100 processes at the same time. <laughs> right. And it makes you wonder, okay, I'm measuring this one, one process, but what is ever what is everything else doing? And, you know, does it really make sense to kind of draw that process out as an abstraction and try to understand it in isolation when all of these other things are, are going on. Um, and it's a real challenge in terms of interpreting, interpreting our data and thinking about what it means. So, yeah, I could, you know, those are the things that like long walks around campus or, you know, hanging out like, well, dear, why are you so distant? You're like, ah, 
what's linking to this chemical bond here? Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes back to what you had yeah. said, like thinking of, of nutrients and, and nutrient uptake, how that can affect drought. Like a lot, there's rarely a case where biology is a one-to-one relationship. It's, it's touching a lot of other things, maybe peripherally, but there's a lot of complicating factors in there. <laughs> and this, this is a really interesting aspect as well. Um, you know, the, the cross between uh, heat stress and drought stress is something that, that people are, are moving into right now heavily. Um, but, you know, over, you know, years, this um, connection between nutrient limitation and drought stress or drought resistance um, ha- has been kind of hanging out there. You know, we've done a couple of studies in that area. Um, I had uh, a, one graduate student, um, Alex Pivovarov, who did a thesis chapter on this. Hmm. And the, the results were fascinating. Fascinating. And it's always fascinating to me that there isn't more uh, emphasis on this, um, you know, especially in an agricultural uh, in an agricultural area, because, you know, by in a managed system where you're controlling the rate um, of nutrient supply, there's potential to, you know, increase the stress tolerance possibly of, of the plants you're growing. And it really, in my opinion, has not been looked at um, hmm. to a satisfactory level. I, I think that's a um, that's a place where people can gain some ground. That is fascinating to think. I, I love looking at where the blind spots are, at least the big gaps. Uh, and, and do you think, do you have any, uh, hypotheses as to why that has been overlooked or just kind of not emphasized as much? I, I think the techniques to study drought resistance and nutrient relations really, um, they, they emphasize different areas of science. Um, mm. People who study nutrient relations often come from a, you know, a soil biogeochemistry background and people who study water often come from a more um, physiological or, or actually physics background. There's yeah. a lot of kind of physics folks in the world of plant hydraulics. And, and so, you know, they, they do cross over to some degree, but it, it's one of the, the kind of light spots in, in terms of crossover that I think we could take more advantage of. Sure. Like decades of hyper-specialization and now we're coming out of like our little nooks and crannies and going, oh, I need to talk to some other people. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and it's interesting, you know, certain people, you know, they, they hyper-specialize and that can be really valuable. Sure, they, sure. they really know their, their systems and, and their techniques um, and then there are people who kind of move between um, the, those subdisciplines and kind of make those linkages. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and some of that depends on the person and their personality, yes. too, I, yes. I think. We need all of those people, right? It's not to say one is more important than the other. Like, w- that spectrum needs to exist. And that's why it's so great to have, like, more diversity conversations going on. Please think differently about this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking across disciplines, um, talking within disciplines, it kind of all needs to happen. We need everybody on board. Right. But to draw a lot of this back to kind of where you started with it is the fluxes of water through ecosystems. I mean, worrying about how plants are responding to stress is going to have impacts, or at least the the results of this can impact our understanding of how water moves through ecosystems, how other organisms are going to fare, how watersheds and our health is going to be affected. I mean, that's why climate change is such a big issue. Like you, you mess with the plants, you're starting to mess with everything else in the environment. That, that's right. Um, you know, plants are such important components of, of watersheds. They, they, you know, they evaporate some water, um, but through their, their rooting, they also create a, a percolation of water through that system so that when it rains, it doesn't just all flow out right away so that it percolates more slowly through the ecosystem. And that's called the sponge effect. Mm. Um, and, and so, so we do need the plants if we, you know, have watersheds that are damaged by drought and lose some individuals, um, we're losing that, that plant component and some of those ecosystem services that they provide. Um, and so that's critical. Um, also in terms of the way plants lose water, if you, if you think about it from kind of landscape scale, as as plants lose water, they're cooling the surface of the earth. And so, um, you know, that, that process of evapotranspiration is a really critical component of, of watersheds and really of any, you know, vegetated surface. That's why we want to plant more trees in, in cities, um, to help cool the concrete, right. um, reduce the urban, urban heat, heat island effect. And, and so all of that kind of traces back to um, plant water use um, as, as an ecosystem service, 
um, as a function for watersheds. And, and that's why it's so important. That's what got me so interested in it in the first place. <laughs> That's great. And I love seeing those connections made eloquently because I, I, it's, again, if you're not thinking about this stuff day in and day out, you're like, ah, shade, that's nice. Not really realizing all the other factors that are playing in there. But in all of this work, in all of the years and, and effort you've spent collaborating and working on these kinds of questions, would you feel like your appreciation of individual species has increased more? Or would you say it's more the bigger picture ecosystem level processes or maybe a combination of both? Like, where do you find like that, that real passion and, and like, wow, that's really cool. Tends to, tends to lie. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it is what we talked about earlier in terms of that scalability. I mean, trying to go into an ecosystem and measure enough of the species to try to get a handle on how that ecosystem functions, how vulnerable it is to change, and how well we can predict what might happen under future scenarios. I think that is what really gets me excited about this. And like I said, you know, if you're going into a desert ecosystem, it can be a lot easier to, to characterize those species and get a handle of what's going on. In a tropical ecosystem, it, it's a lot more challenging to do that. Um, and so you have to take some different approaches. But in, in either situation, when we can do that, when we can measure enough species and start to see what the ranges of function are in the ecosystem across those dominant species, um, then I feel like we're really in business. Yeah, it's exciting times. And it's it's nice to always hear from the people doing the work that it's it's getting faster, it's getting easier, it's getting more approachable, I guess. But you know, in that context for your lab, for your work, what is just over the horizon? Like what excites you the most now? What kind of questions are you, are you most focused on answering uh, or asking at least at this point? Yeah. So there, there's a couple different ones. I mean, I, you know, I'm definitely continuing on with, um, these approaches of looking at comparative, um, drought vulnerability within ecosystems to try to predict what might happen with drought and trying to incorporate as many different traits as I can um, to, to try to, you know, try to get kind of a caricature of this complex behavior that plants have in response to drought. And, and that's a huge challenge. Um, and that's why I want to keep, keep doing that. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, we have one project in our lab that deals with, um, endangered species in, ver in vernal pools. And mm. this, you know, has to do with habitat loss and these vernal pools, they're unique vernal pools. They're saline um, and they're, they, you know, they've been the victim of, of you know, habitat loss and, and also climate change at the same time. With less rain, they don't fill as much. And trying to understand the trajectory of those individual species um, which, which are incredibly rare, um, is, is something else that, that we're doing right now. So that's something for the future that we're very focused on. And, um, I would say the the third really big thing and probably the most important for the future is, is my teaching, um, nice. teaching my graduate students and training them, um, to be the next generation of people who are going to do this work. And working with my undergraduates to get them excited about this kind of stuff. You know, a, a lot of my undergraduates, they, um, they want to go into the medical profession because um, they're in <laughs> biology. And I start to see that spark where they get interested in plants. Yeah. And, and that's really exciting. When I see that, I just go for it. Um, because plants are so fascinating and many of them, they, they don't realize how much they actually are fascinated by plants and how much they love plants. And so when I can turn them on to plants and get them thinking about it and get them coming around the lab, asking me questions and, <laughs> you know, asking me if they can do a project, that is when I, I get really excited. And, um, those people are, are young and they're going to be the ones in the future who are going to make decisions. So yeah. that's, that's really important. I love that. That's very refreshing to hear because I feel like had it's, you get a weird introduction to plants for so long in, in the modern education system. And I just wish some of these sort of topics were introduced sooner because that is what gets people excited. Like they don't know it or I, I rarely, if ever, run into someone who's antagonistic to it. So it's those hooks. You got to get in them in. And, and like the undergraduate point is so great because so many of them are coming in with like rabid curiosity for the world. They just don't know what they don't know yet. <laughs> Yeah. And plant stress really works. I mean, it's, you know, it's life or death. It's um, plants in the extreme, you know, what's going to happen. It's a drama. And in my classes, I, I go nuts with that to try to draw them in. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 
I also, I, I teach in Southern California, you know, people are, they're entertainment savvy, yes. you know, they, they respond to drama. They want to know what's going to happen, you know? And yeah. so, and so it's really fun too. So, so you get to be on, like, you're forced to be on top of your game when you're in front of those students. You can't just phone it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Not for a minute. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> Well, with that in mind, if those listening want to learn more about your work and maybe even reach out and learn a little bit more, where do you recommend they go to find out? Um, boy, there's so many resources. Um, you know, you can always come to my website, um, ecophys.ucr.edu. Um, the Ecological Society of America is a, a place that's full of resources um, and people who are excited about this stuff. Um, I'm also a, a member of the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation, which focuses on these things in the tropics, um, the Botanical Society of America. All of these groups have resources and people, um, and you can get involved and join and learn so much more about it. Excellent. Well, I will spare everyone the trouble of trying to remember all that by putting in links. But uh, Dr. Santiago, this is incredible. It's mind-blowing work, and, and I'm so happy to see how even the smallest details can have massive global impacts. And of course, thank you so much for taking the time to teach us about this. It's, it's fascinating work and please keep it up. I will, Matt. And it's been great to talk to you. I have to say, you know, I, I love the podcast. Thank you. My wife loves the podcast. Oh, and when I told her that I was going to be on In Defense of Plants, she looked at me with a serious face and said, you've made it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So I, so I was really happy to come on. Oh, that's incredible! Thank you so much. That that truly meant so much to hear. So <laughs> I'm glad it uh, made an impact. So yeah, uh, again, keep in touch. Any updates? Uh, you're welcome back on at any time. Keep, just fascinating stuff. All right, I will. Thank you, Matt. All right, cheers. Cheers. All right. How interesting is that? It just goes to show you how diverse the backgrounds can be to understand and appreciate and make an impact on plants, stress, and their impact on the environment. I thank Dr. Santiago for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com and navigate to each episode. The podcast is the homepage. And while you're over there, look at all of the great ways you can help support the show because conversations like this can't happen without your support. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can pick up some of our customizable merch. I also have a book for sale and stickers. And of course, there's always Patreon. Patreon.com slash Plants allows you to support the show with a little amount each and every month. There's some great kickbacks over there, including bonus episodes that you can't hear anywhere else. So go check that out. Once again, it's Patreon.com slash Plants. I couldn't be doing it without my patrons, and this is a big shout-out to all of them. They make a huge difference, so thank you for supporting it. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.